Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello and welcome everyone to this edition of the Theology Mom Podcast. Glad to have you here today. This is a special audio-only edition of the Theology Mom podcast. I am very busy working on a lot of projects and don't really have time for a live stream, but I did want to drop some new content for you. And this is an issue that uh, I've been thinking about for a very long time, and we're going to be addressing the question of, are we all God's children? And the reason I wanted to discuss this is because frequently uh, one of the things that we say at the Center for Biblical Unity is that it is God's vision to build a spiritual family drawn from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that this vision that God has to build a new spiritual family from among the nations is truly the foundation for racial unity. Without God's initiative, there there would truly be no hope for sinful humans to be able to walk together in life and love each other and have meaningful relationships with each other. It's, It's truly because of the very unique relationship that we have as a result of Jesus's work on the cross. To be a Christian means that we have this shared identity with a group of people from very diverse backgrounds. Uh, That could be socioeconomic diversity. It could be diversity of national backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, all different kinds of backgrounds. Okay. So don't get trapped into thinking like I'm only talking about um, black and white people that, that it, what I'm talking about is far, far bigger than that. And um, this, this unique identity that we have as being part of Christ's family to being in the household of the father is very unique. And, and it is not an identity that is shared by all of humanity. This really is a critical piece of our model at the Center for Biblical Unity for um, true ethnic unity. However, that being said, I also see frequent comments on social media making the claim that we are all God's children. And generally, I, I think that people intend this sentiment to mean that God has the same relationship with every human equally. The the implication is that God relates to each person directly as a heavenly father. And sometimes this phrase uh, that we are all God's children is even used to affirm an idea like universal salvation, that ultimately everyone will be saved. I would like to offer today in in this podcast a few words of clarification 
about this issue because it does directly connect to our approach to racial unity. Um, does the Bible actually teach that everyone is a child of God in the same way? We're going to take a closer look at some very key scriptures that I think address this question. First, we're going to look at God as creator. Now, um, I don't think it's a controversial thing. Every, every Christian should agree that all humans are created in the image of God. All we have to do is look back at Genesis chapter 1. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is really the foundation for our unity as humans. And this is what Monique and I frequently call the, the foundation for our creation identity. And this is an identity that applies to all humans in all times and all places. This is an identity that is not unique to Christians. All humans are created in the image of God, male or female, and they have been appointed to um, rule over the creation. So again, we call this our creation identity. But even after the fall, what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that humans are tempted, the first man and the first woman are tempted by the serpent, and they fall into sin. So then what happens to that dignity, to the image of God after the fall? Is it erased? Does it go away? What, what, what are we to think about these things? I love the words of Psalm 8. It's a wonderful meditation on creation. In verse 5, it says, You have made them, meaning humans, God has made humans a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. What a wonderful way of describing human dignity. And I would say that this description still applies to us even after the fall. Now, that's not to say that nothing happens in the fall. Um, I think that the image of God uh, can be seen as being marred. Uh, but I do think that the the honor and dignity of the human person continues to be maintained after the fall. Let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 9. It's a great follow-up comment. This is right after the flood. And God tells Noah and his family, and Noah is acting as almost like a second Adam. God re-gives him the command to multiply and fill the earth. 
And then he says this, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. You can see here in the Hebrew, um, the life is the nefesh and Adam. The, the word Adam there is not being used as a, as a proper noun, but as a generic term for the human person. And nefesh is that, that soulish quality of, of bringing um, the inanimate man to life. And so we, uh, sometimes we call this the soul. And whoever sheds human lifeblood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God created or made mankind. So one of the, the, the things I want you to notice here is that it is because humans, even after the fall, still have the image of God in them, that God demands an accounting for their life. This is the biblical foundation for what we call today capital punishment, life for life. What is the warrant for the life for life principle is that humans alone are created in the image of God. This is a dignity that is maintained even after the fall. The Apostle James warns us in the New Testament not to verbally disparage other people. And I want you to notice his wording here. It's, it's so interesting to me because he takes us, James takes us right back to the creation. He says this, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. That's James chapter three, verse nine. So while our tongue is giving praise and worship to God, we also use uh, this part of our body to pronounce curses over our fellow humans. And these things should not be, says James. But why? Why should they not be? It is because our fellow human beings are created in the image of God. So when we think about these matters, when we think about our creation identity, we have to know that all humans in all times and all places are created in the image of God. They're created to rule and reign over the creation. And even after the fall, although all humans are sinful, we maintain the dignity of uh, what it means to be created in the image of God. When we put all these scriptures together, I think two very important truths emerge. First, humans are fallen. Second, humans maintain the image of God. This inherent, intrinsic quality of dignity, value, and worth even amidst their fallenness. Both of these descriptions are universally applied, again, to all humans in all times and all places. This is part of what we call creation identity. Now, there is one reference in the New Testament that I also want to um, call your attention to. And this is a verse where humans 
are universally described as being the offspring of God. And this is in the context of uh, the Apostle Paul's sermon to the philosophers in Athens. And he describes God as the creator of everything, including the creator of all humanity. Let's look at this quick uh, little verse here, right embedded in the middle of Paul's sermon in Acts 17. He says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives himself, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This harkens us right back to the creation account. And from one man, he made all the nations. Notice what it says in Greek here. Ethnos, anthropos. Anthropos is the Greek word for humans. Ethnos is nations, or it's where we get the word ethnicities. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. This is what we call in Christian theology, the providence of God, that he caused each of us to be birthed in a particular time and place. Picking up at verse 27 of Acts 17, God did this so that they would seek him, perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. So here the Apostle Paul quotes one of the Greek philosophers. This is the Sicilian Stoic philosopher, Aratus. And he borrows this little phrase to help kind of bridge a cultural gap. And he says, we are his offspring. He's not quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting a Greek philosopher. So here in this context, Paul is making this kind of generic statement that humans are the offspring of God. Paul's description, however, I don't think connotes a direct father-child relationship between the creator and all humans. Rather, this seems to me to be a more of a generic description of the origin of humanity. It would be sort of like saying George Washington is the father of our country. In this way, God acts as a source, uh, like a source or a progenitor of all of humanity. And this is really um, the only scripture that I can find that uses this kind of language of offspring language concerning God and all of humanity. So that was considering God as creator. Now let's focus in on God as father. This is a very uh, unique and particular identity that we have as Christians. Monique and I call this salvation identity. Okay. And in this salvation identity, which is different than creation identity, we argue, and I will attempt to argue here in, in the verses that follow, that this 
salvation identity is not true of all humans in all times and all places, but rather is a particular relationship with particular people. So let's start with John chapter 3. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is really a foundational passage of that the God the Father has only one unique Son. This is a special relationship that the Father has with the Son. However, humans have the potential to become one of God's children through adoption. So it's like he he has one native son, okay? But there is this potential for you and I to become one of the Father's children through adoption. This is where the work of Jesus on the cross comes in. Jesus' work on the cross opens up the possibility for us to become co-heirs with Jesus as a child of God. And Christ alone is said to be the way, the truth, and the life to this, um, to, to get to the Father. How do we get to the Father? Well, John chapter 14, verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Other places in the Gospel of Luke and other places talks about the narrow door, the narrow path, okay? So if we want to get to the Father, there is only one way to do that, and that is through the Son. When we get to Paul's theology in his epistles, we observe that he uses a lot of phrases, a lot of instances of God our Father. Um, In fact, this is a common opening to his epistles. I'm going to share just a couple of them here. Romans chapter 1, verse 7 says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father, Theos, Ego, Pater, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at one more. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, Theos, Ego, Pater. This kind of family language is used throughout Paul's epistles. Again, this is just a couple of examples. But in context, it's clear that he's referring to Christians, not all of humanity. All right, that's the important point. Again, we're looking at not God as creator, but God as father. All right, so this is a particular identity that is only true for Christians. There are many places in Paul's writings where he uses more explicitly the analogy of adoption 
to describe the Christian's relationship with the Father. And again, I'm just going to share a few of these verses here. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So how is this adoption facilitated? It is through the work of Jesus on the cross that we have this special relationship of adoption. Look at another one. This one's from Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Notice again, family relationship, God and the father, and sends his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So, again, we notice this special adoption language. Let's look at another passage from Galatians. This is Galatians 3, 26, 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. This is vital. How are we children of God? Not all humans are children of God. Rather, children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This language all connotes who are the children of God? It is those who are saved, those who have been baptized into Christ, clothed with Christ through faith. This is all language of salvation. So again, we're talking about salvation identity, not creation identity, salvation identity. And this is true of particular people who have expressed and come into agreement with faith and hope and confidence in Jesus as the Messiah. Romans chapter 8 uses very similar language. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So who are the children of God? Those who have the Holy Spirit living in them. The Spirit you have received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And we cry, Abba, Father. So who is it that cries, Abba, Father? Not every human. Those who are his children, particular people who have been adopted into the Father's household. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So all of this family language is highly particular to the Christian, not every human. God has knit together a new people consisting of Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, slave and free. These are the people who have become the children of God. I love John chapter one, I think it's a great summary of the whole matter. This is where John explains that we become God's children through grace rather than through birthright. Even though Jesus was rejected by many, and we can expect 
to also be rejected by many because of our connection with Jesus. He says this in John chapter one, he who came, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him yet to all who receive him to those who believe in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God, children born, not of natural descent. In other words, not a birthright. You don't get this status simply because this is who your parents are, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Okay? So who can become a child of God? Those who have believed in his name. These are the ones that he gave the right to become the children of God. Once again, we see that this is a particular group of people. It is not true of all humans in all times and all places. Now, one more point for your consideration. Interestingly, Jesus goes a little bit further. It's not only that there are only particular people who can become the children of God. Jesus even goes so far as to call some of those who are outside of his family as belonging to their their father, the devil. Let's look at John chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 44 here. Jesus says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And this is a hard word that that some, Jesus calls some unbelievers that, that, that their father is the devil. Let's look at the context here of who he's, who he's talking to. Back in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? So those who are not believing in him, he says, they, they see the implication of what he's saying, that they are illegitimate children. And they say, the only father we have is, is God himself. And he says, no, you are not a child of God unless you belong to me, unless you believe in me as Messiah, unless you are my disciple. No, you belong to your father, the devil. This is a tough saying. We don't we don't think about non-Christians very often in this day and age as being children of the devil. Like we don't we don't run around with with that kind of language. But in Ephesians chapter 2 it says quite clearly in verse 2 that when you, you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Paul characterizes the unbeliever as someone who follows in the ways of the devil that, and that the spirit of the devil 
is at work in those who are disobedient. So, so more than just saying you're not, you're not a child of God. It's that you are a disobedient person. And in fact, you are being manipulated and controlled. Your thoughts are being controlled by the devil. One more verse, if we flip the pages a little bit forward in Ephesians, we read this, Ephesians chapter five, verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. These are some hard words, hard, hard to think about. Those who are not in a covenant relationship with the Father through Jesus as their Messiah, he is not their father. God is not their father. He does not have that special father, daughter, father, son relationship with those people. This brings us to a critical point. This, When I take all of this data together, here's kind of the, the, the summary of what I see. All humans have God as creator. He is their source. He is the progenitor of humanity, okay? But not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone has that special father-daughter, father-son, salvation identity. But here is the truly good news, is that Jesus extends the invitation to become his child, to come into a relationship with Jesus as a co-heir with, the, the, with himself, um, and come into that special relationship of God as Father. That invitation goes out to everyone. That invitation goes out to every nation, every socioeconomic status, male, female, slave or free, whoever you are, wherever you are, whoever your parents are, you are invited to become a child of God. And I pray that everyone who listens to this podcast will know Jesus as their savior, their Messiah, and God as their father. I pray that you will know what it's like to be a child of God, not living like a child of the devil, full of his lies and deceptions in your mind, but that you will have a personal relationship with the real Lord Jesus Christ and experience the forgiveness that the Father offers you when you repent and turn away from your sins, you too can become a child of God. Now, in light of all of this teaching, I want to take a few minutes to do some practical application of how understanding the creation identity and salvation identity apply in real life situations and in real life ministry situations. So when I, po when I posted the blog version of this discussion, a thoughtful commenter um, came on uh, my social media page and 
asked me how the framework of salvation identity, the framework of using this family language only belongs to or only applies to Christians and how that fits with the popular belong, believe, behave paradigm that is so popular right now in evangelical churches. Um, and in fact, it, it's just, it's so pervasive. Um, our, in fact, our old pastor at our previous church advocated this idea repeatedly from the pulpit. I heard him myself when, when we went there, belong, first you belong, then you, you can believe and, and then you behave. Uh, and so I thought the commenter's question was a great question. And so I want to um, try to address it a bit. The thought behind the belong, believe, behave paradigm, I think could best be summarized as an evangelism strategy. And I, I think it's probably coming from a good place. The, the thought goes like this. We should allow people, and by people, I mean including non-Christians, to enter into church life by belonging to the church community, finding a sense of belonging, a feeling of belonging to the church community, and feel accepted before we require that they believe in Jesus as Messiah. I think the motivation here is that wouldn't seeing how wonderful church fellowship can be, um, wouldn't that, rather than just being an outsider looking at how wonderful church fellowship is, wouldn't it be better to bring that person in, that non-Christian, to allow them to experience the meaningful um, nature of church fellowship from the inside. And if we want to commend the gospel to non-Christians, what could be more effective than inviting them inside, letting them try it on before they commit to buying it, if you will. If the community is the most powerful tool we have, then let's bring people in, not, not as outside observers, but as cautious insiders participating in our corporate life with us. So this is a little bit of the, the sentiment behind the belong, believe, behave paradigm. And I think the thought here is that what it's going to take to evangelize uh, Gen Z and millennials uh, is going to be first and foremost on relationships. It's not so much about what people believe as much as it is uh, how they feel and what their experiences are. So we want to, rather than, um, you know, just preach at them, uh, we want to invite them to to join us on a spiritual journey rather than you know, just inviting them to respond to a one-time conversion sales pitch, if you will, you know, the sinner's prayer. Today, uh, today's seekers, they must feel that they're part of a community, so the thought goes, 
before they will embrace Christ. This is the belonging comes before believing idea. In this way, unbelievers become seekers rather than calling them non-Christians or more pejoratively children of wrath, even though that's the language that the Apostle Paul uses. They become fellow travelers on this journey with us. And, and we see ourselves as just being a little bit further down the road than them. And, and the proof texts that, that people will often point to is, you know, look at situations like Jesus's engagement with the Samaritan woman at the well or, or the lepers or the woman caught in adultery or even the, um, like the commenter who came on my social media used the, the parable of the, of the prodigal son. Uh, the idea here is that, well, see, uh, Jesus first uh, got to know these individuals, helped them feel like they belonged. He loved them, regardless of their behavior and their sin and their choice to follow him or not. And so by by putting the belonging first, the thought goes is, well, then then belief is expected to naturally follow as a result of the person experiencing and receiving the unconditional love of God and the unconditional love of those in uh, the church. See, these people in the Bible, they, they didn't have to believe in Jesus before they were shown love and compassion. Rather, they came to believe in him because of the love and compassion. Again, I'm just explaining how these people think and the kinds of arguments that they make. And so then after they get the belonging and then the believing, then the third phase comes and that is the behaving. The behaving will naturally emerge after the believing. So because I belonged, that led me to believe. Then because I believe, I'm going to start behaving right. The Holy Spirit will convict me to clear up clean up my act. So how this works out in a ministry situation in a local church context is that we shouldn't tell non-Christians, you know, you need to stop sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you can join us. You, you need to, we shouldn't be telling homosexuals that before you can join us, you need to stop your behavior. After all, you know, Matthew 7, we're all sinners. We all have, you know, that whole plank speck situation in our eye. We're all in the same footing. We're all in the same playing field. So, you know, let's let the sinners in. Let's let the non-Christians in. And what we mean by this, practically speaking, is um, we, we might let, let non-Christians join various, various ministries, Install them as ushers. Let them participate in handing out uh, bulletins or seating people. Uh, install them as coffee cart workers in the coffee shop. Uh, more tricky things is do we put them on the worship team? Do we let them serve in the after school tutoring program? You know, uh, where do we draw these lines? If everyone is going to already be included, everyone is going to belong before we require them to believe. Now, I realize that technically, um, in a local church context, it could be that among church staff members, 
they differentiate behind the scenes between, you know, well, you're a part of church life, but the person's not a part of eternal life. Okay. They haven't yet believed. And that they they might make a differentiation on staff that um, you know, believing and belonging are not the same thing. But here is my question is, is this differentiation being clearly communicated to the non-believer? After all, they've they've already been accepted into church life, at least on some kind of level. And in many instances, they've been allowed to serve in church life. And I can certainly see why this whole framework is a very attractive idea. But in in my honest opinion, uh, this is a very bad idea. And and I'm going to explain three three reasons why I think this is a bad idea. I think that the belong, believe, behave paradigm creates a lot of confusion. It creates confusion for the Christians and it creates confusion for the non-Christians. When I saw this belong, believe, behave paradigm practiced in our old church, it resulted in this kind of odd situation where you had all of these undefined people who all claim to belong. And among the belongers, some were zealous and committed to the gospel. They understood the, the, the gospel and were living to according to the laws of Christ. Other belongers were just showing up for the fellowship and the great worship and wanting to be entertained. Still other belongers, um, you know, they didn't really want to contribute to the, the family life. They were living in flagrant sin, but they were all being called family from the pulpit. They were all ad- addressed as if everyone in the room were followers and disciples of Jesus. And then we had to come up with kind of like extra categories besides saying you're a Christian or you're a disciple, like actual biblical terms, to saying committed Christians or serious Christians, or born-again Christians, or that sort of thing. It just was very confusing to know who the who the belongers were. Um, now, I'll grant you that in any local church context, there's going to be a range of Christians who have differing spiritual maturity. That's going to be a spectrum issue. And I'll also, you know, quickly want to concede that Christian sin all Christians sin. But when everyone's a belonger and, and you know, the, 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 the sharp distinction isn't there over Christians and non-Christians, another big problem that I've seen is that how do you, how do people engage in church discipline? Okay. How do we handle things when there's flagrant, unrepentant, sin. I'm not talking about like everyday sin that all of us struggle with and we're always in the struggle and we know that we're in the struggle and we're trying to mortify our flesh and we're trying to make forward progress in our sanctification. I'm not talking about that. That's the life of the Christian. That's our cross to bear. But I'm talking about unregenerate people 
or people who might think that they're in the belongers group, but they're living in explicit, unrepentant sin um, that violates the law of Christ. How do you handle church discipline? How do you call people to repentance? Um, Jesus makes many statements in the gospels, you know, things to the effect of whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, sister, mother. Um, that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I mean, this is pretty fundamental stuff to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The way that salvation is described in the New Testament is that that the Christian is 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 not just somebody who who belongs to a local church. It's that this person is is making a radical break from their former way of living. It's a completely new identity. And when we begin to, I would say, intentionally blur this line between the Christian and the non-Christian, we, we end up confusing Christians about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the first place. And we also confuse the non-Christians, um, which leads me to a second point, is that when we put belonging before believing, um, for the non-Christians, it, it really does become a real problem because um, I cannot really blame a non-Christian if they were to get confronted in a flagrant unrepentant sin where they could respond to something like, well, I didn't sign up for this. If, if I'd known this was going to happen and this is what belonging looked like, that it was going to be this confrontation about my sin or what you consider a sin, who are you to judge me? I, I never would have joined this place in the first place. I mean, I can certainly be sympathetic to why they'd respond that way. So for the for person who belongs before they believe, being a Christian isn't about obeying Jesus. It's simply, a, in most cases, likely about hanging out and feeling accepted. The person is only what I might call Christian adjacent. Thus, accountability or, you know, using the, the, the law of Christ as a standard for living and in, in humble, loving obedience to the Father. I mean, we, we can't even have that conversation because the person is not even regenerate yet. They're not, they're not in Christ. So accountability can't even be part of the conversation. When, when non-Christians are never told that they are in fact non-Christians, but instead they're, they're taught and discipled to think that they are fellow travelers or seekers or people at different stages of the same journey. I can see how it'd be very easy for them to be confused about what it actually means to be a Christian and why should I need to trust in the gospel and what is the gospel? And we, because we've lost these, these fine distinctions. And I think that the desire to belong to a wonderful spiritual family, like a local church, people can easily be, be led to just sign up for being in Jesus's community, but never really sign up to, 
obeying Jesus's commandments or repenting of their sins or placing their faith and hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. And now again, technically a church staff might talk behind the scenes as if they know that, well, we all know there's a difference between church life and eternal life, right? Those aren't the same things. But my question is, is, is this differentiation being clearly communicated to the non-Christian? After all, they're already being accepted into church life, at least on some level, and in many instances, already being allowed to serve in the church. And this brings me to a third problem. And, and when we put belonging before believing, this fundamentally redefines the local church. The local church is defined, biblically speaking, not by its documents, not by its buildings, not by its programs, not by its service, not even necessarily by its fellowship. The local church is a manifestation of the universal church. The universal church is consists of those people who are in Christ. The Bible makes a very clear distinction between those who are in Christ or in Adam, the sheep or the goats, those who have the sign of, of the lamb or the mark of the beast, the narrow way, the wide way. I mean, this sort of binary language is throughout the New Testament to be a, a, a part of the church is a new identity. The church primarily and first is a new identity. It's the living stones. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a new people from calling, being called out from among the nations. The church is an identity. It is not a place. Okay? And your station, your position is either one of in Christ or in Adam. There is no like kind of gray third way of belonging where you're kind of church adjacent because you're hanging out with Christians. The, the, the power of the church's witness is that when the world looks at a local church, when they look at a group of Christians, of course they see imperfect people. They see sinners. They see sinners in the struggle. But that shouldn't be the only thing that the world sees. They should also see sinners whose lives are being radically transformed by the power of the gospel, by humble obedience uh, to the law of Christ. It, it sees cultural enemies uh, who actually come together in this new people and love each other with a love that cannot be explained by the natural world. Um, it, and it is empowered and enabled and facilitated as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth is the universal church only consists of these true Christians, those with a new identity, those who are in Christ. And local church, churches ought to be a manifestation of the universal church. They're a local manifestation of it. So telling someone that they can belong before they believe distorts all of these distinctions, all of these kind of binary language used throughout the New Testament um, that 
when we, we just want to redefine the church, the local churches, well, we're a community who are on a journey together. Th- this is not helpful. This is not biblical. This is, it is disciples people into thinking in very confusing and unbiblical categories. Local churches can certainly be warm and opening. They can be welcoming. They can um, do a lot of things to welcome outsiders. But using this language, by putting belonging before belief, fundamentally redefines the church. The church can only be a family to those who believe in order to belong or who, because they believe they do belong would be a better way of saying it. Um, Positionally speaking, the non-Christian is on the outside looking in. He might see all of the allure of meaningful connection in the local church, but there, there is somewhat of a glass barrier that separates us from the non-Christian. It's a transparent barrier. It's a glass barrier. The the non-Christian can see the good things inside the local church. He, and, and he might be invited in and he might get some taste of it from time to time, but he still must do take the step of going in the narrow door, repenting of his sins turning away from his past life, placing his faith, hope, and confidence in Jesus, the Savior, Messiah, and living the Christian life in humble obedience to the law of Christ. And until he does, he can see and appreciate through the glass what's on the inside, and he can, you know, maybe smell the smells of the bakery or whatever, but he he, he, he cannot be given a message that he is fully included and fully accepted just the way that he is. Because that's just not true. Now, once he, 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 he repents and places his faith in Jesus, he will become a full member of the family. And when you're a full member of the family, you do belong. When, when non-Christians encounter your church, it, 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 it should, again, it should be like looking through a window, not, not a brick wall. We're not trying to, to completely alienate and shun people. We can create a welcoming environment. They can see and feel the warmth and the love and the welcoming and all of these things. They can witness the depth of relationships. They can experience and, and see people who genuinely care about each other in a way that the world just doesn't know and understand. They can taste the richness of the gospel. They can hear the preaching of the word, but they should never be sent a message that they are full belongers and full participants because they're not, they're not family. So by all means, I hope that you will create a community that welcomes the outsider and that you're generous in your hospitality, but also clearly preach the gospel, invite people to respond to it in repentance and in faith. And I hope that each and every one of you who listen to this podcast will come to faith in Jesus, that you will know what it means to belong to God's spiritual family, that you will truly know him as father, 
and that you will know what it means to be a child of the Most High God. Thank you for listening and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.